Coming up this hour, the day is finally here. So we're going to start with four questions for Election Day. And then we're joined by Jim Dennison. You're listening to The Common Group. everyone. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. Brian started the day mentioning something. Oh, it was funnier than how I'm going to say it. You said something like, (laughs) oh, did you know they're giving out stickers now or (laughs) something like that? I also came on and told you, go, hey, I forgot it was Election Day. (laughs) (laughs) So really, essentially, Brian started the show today with two lies is what he's saying, which I I think is appropriate for the day. Uh, Real quickly, before we dive into... What we know for a lot of people is a day of stress, maybe a day of joy, maybe something in between. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good. There's some backstory about the show there. Instagram and Twitter, at Common Good Talk. Plus, wherever it is you get your podcast. If you're the podcast and type, you probably already know this, but you can subscribe, rate, and review. And every little bit there helps. Even if you don't want to type words, just giving us five stars or sharing it with a friend. All of that is super meaningful and super helpful, and we're really grateful for those of you who have already done that. Brian, a little tongue-in-cheek, but it is Election Day. And uh, yeah. before we kind of dive in, I'd, I'd love to just kind of take your uh, emotional temperature, as it were. How you how you feeling about the day? Yeah, I I, I kind of am feeling a little bit, surprisingly, of uh, excitement, but also anxiety. Like, what's going to happen today? You see on the news, them boarding up stores again and doing like people are. And I understand this could just be clickbaity, but but I do read all the stories of people like, hey, there, there could be violence tonight. And you're just like, oh, my gosh, like uh, what is going on? And so I, I would say I'm excited. I'm a little anxious. Like, what's how's this all going to play out? And then I was talking to my son this morning and he asked a very uh childlike question that I thought was important. He said, are we going to know who wins today? And I said, probably not. So there's there's also that patience of like, it is election day, but will when, when we come on the air tomorrow, will we know what's going on? And so I would say I'm a mix of all of those. How about yourself? How'd you feel today? Uh, yeah, probably somewhere, somewhere in all of that. It depends on the moment, to be honest. Like yeah. I was I was telling you, you know, my early voting experience was Super delightful, and um, not only just from the people that were working there, but the, the people that were you know voting or waiting in line, like the whole thing. And again, we've talked about this a thousand times in the show. It is interesting in a pandemic to get a lot of your information and a lot of your um, assessment via digital means. That's right. Because sometimes when you actually go, you know, where people are, which I, I realize is complicated right now, there there was for me a sense of like. Oh, people, there aren't like pitchforks and flaming. T- you know what I mean? Like, it just, there was like a general, like, hey, how are you? Hey, it's good to see you. Like, it was just civil. It was really nice. And I, I don't, either way, that was like a good, like, reminder. Like, oh, okay. I, I think, I think things, uh, at, at least in my little corner of the woods, yeah. are not as, um, what's the word? Tumultuous, I guess. Yeah. Maybe well, it's often meant to be. Let me depress you a little bit. My my voting experience a couple of days ago was wonderful. Like you said, it took like three minutes, which I know is not everybody's uh, experience. But in those three minutes that I was there, a guy came in and started yelling about the, how close the signs were outside at an election judge. And I was like, you have got to be kidding me. Oh, <laughs> they no got kidding. Into yes. I was wow, like, I'm here for wait. three minutes. And they're arguing about how far the signs could be from the entrance. It was something. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm glad you had a very peaceful experience. I sure did. I sure but I got did. the sticker. I got the sticker. So we're all good. Well, I want to make sure to read this article. And, and I mentioned this yesterday. You know, typically the first segment of the day is sort of like, 
news headlines rapid fire. And I wanted to take a different approach, at least up until today, to spend some time with, you know, articles or perspectives that are maybe a little more formational than just Mm -hmm. informational. And uh, this is this was written a couple days ago. It's actually called Four Questions Before Election Day. But I think it also it also applies for today. This is from Jason Seville from uh, the Gospel Coalition. Do you want to get us into these four? I, I do. And and I like that you wanted to start us this way today because you go to a lot of stations and get, you know, uh, the hard hitting what's who's going to win, what's the pathway. But I do think the role we play is to say, hey, hey, Christ follower, what's our what's our posture today? What's important right. uh, as we go into this very important day? And so this article says, where is the line between earnestly desiring to see a president work what is good and putting our trust in him? How do we know if we're rightfully hopeful about a candidate or if we're sinfully putting our hope in him, which is such an important distinction here. Uh, And so the author goes on to say, let me suggest four diagnostic questions that might reveal a slide toward trusting in in princes. And then he adds parenthetically or presidents. Number one, uh, do you expect the president to satisfy something for you that you believe Jesus fails to satisfy? If you sense your heart is loading this presidential election with the freight of true meaning, abundant life, felt salvation, existential rest, or ultimate security, it's evidence of idolatrous hope in a commander-in-chief. Man, I I really think that one's important. Why don't you take number two? Why don't I take number two, Brian? Do you Mm -hmm. get more worked up when someone speaks ill of your candidate than when someone speaks ill of Christ? You will suffer through a sitcom that repeatedly glorifies... Uh, Oh, sorry. My computer just went blank, Brian. (laughs) If you will suffer through a sitcom that repeatedly glorifies the things that God hates, but you quickly change the channel in frustration when a TV personality or a famous athlete makes a disparaging remark about your candidate, it may be a sign that your affections are disordered. So I do kind of think this is set up like a Jeff Foxworthy thing, right? You might be putting (laughs) your hope in presidents. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Should I take that one specifically personally? Like the Lord made my computer go blank <laughs> during true. that one is sort of like a hey be mindful of this one son uh, okay start. we're we're back number three uh fingers crossed <laughs> just give me the word again if you need help <laughs> yeah I'll, I'll give you the nod uh do you feel more fundamentally aligned with a non-christian who aligns with your political party than with a church member who votes differently from you christians share the most vital deep-seated identity forming reality in common with other christ followers we've been redeemed by the blood of christ brought into one new body, and indwelled by the same spirit. This brotherhood and sisterhood stands regardless of our politics. Indeed, it, e- it exists even across vastly different forms of government. I have a tighter bond of fellowship with my friend Feng, who is a Christian in communist China, than I do with a member of my own family who doesn't know Jesus. Mm-hmm. That, one's, that one's convicting. It is. That's right out of Scout Saul's, right? Jesus outside the lines. And uh, yeah, I think that's an important one to consider. Uh, Last one. Will it be impossible for you to experience the outcome of the election without being overly elated and euphoric if your candidate wins or utterly devastated and destroyed if they lose? He says, again, elections are important and we're right to approach them with hope for a desired outcome. But if you're unable to function spiritually, relationally or occupationally because Mm. of the toll of November the 3rd, if it doesn't go your way, there's some heart work to be done. Some sadness or joy is natural and to be expected, but an election result won't be soul crushing to someone who's hoping in the proper prince. He says, don't mishear me. I'm not saying elections or presidents or policies are unimportant. 
all the issues on the docket are important and weighty. The stakes are high. Voting in a democracy is a significant privilege. You ought to vote as a Christian with conviction about what is right. You ought to vote as a Christian informed by the word of God. You ought to vote as your conscience allows, having weighed all the options. But what Psalm 146 would tell you, however, is that while you're free to give a presidential candidate your vote, you can't give the candidate your heart. Put not your trust in princes. I just think that's a good word. If you've already gone to the polls today, but you're anxiously waiting to see the results, or maybe you're still going to the polls today, I think this is a good word to start on from the Gospel Coalition today. Yeah, I would say maybe you can actually give a candidate your heart, but maybe that's not a great idea. That's yeah. Maybe <laughs> how I would edit. Yep. It seems that's maybe at the core of, of some of the rhetoric that we see online, and maybe not not so much online. We often kind of rail on, you know, how difficult it can be to be civil online. But like you're saying, that's happening in person too. Either way, like we know that today is filled with a kaleidoscope of emotions for a, a lot of us. And uh, I wanted to offer just something that maybe hopefully cuts a little bit through the noise. And if you're, you know, listening, you know, via radio or the podcast, I would encourage you to go and go and actually read the list again. And uh, we've posted this up on our Facebook page and would love to know what you think. Uh, coming up next, Jim Dennison, who we've had on the show before and was phenomenal. He's going to join us for two segments. We're going to talk about some of his recent writing around the election. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. We're absolutely thrilled to have back to the show Jim Dennison. Welcome back, sir. Uh, Ian, so glad to be on with you and Brian today. It's a real privilege for me. And, and I would encourage people, by the way, to go back and listen to the last time you were on, because I just found it brilliant. And we got a lot of really good response back in September when you were on. And uh, just as a reminder, though, I'd love for you to take a minute or two and just reintroduce yourself to our audience. Yeah, you bet. Glad to do that. I'm in Dallas right now, but we have a kind of international ministry. My calling is to speak biblical truth to cultural issues. So mm -hmm. I get up every morning really early and put together an email that we send out to about 300,000 subscribers with a social audience of about 1.9 million. That's all at denisonforum.org. And my job in that is not to think in a partisan way, in a sectarian way, but to ask, what does the Bible say about the breaking news of the day? What mm -hmm. does the Bible say about the issues of the day? And the larger goal behind that is to equip Christians to think biblically about cultural issues so they can use their influence to shape the culture for Christ. That's why doing conversations like this is so missional for me, because it's an opportunity to talk with you about the issues of the day in a way that can hopefully equip our listeners to be able to make a difference in the culture for Jesus. Wow. Mm. That's great. Jim, I'm uh, wondering what what are you saying to your uh, subscribers today, being election day, being such a huge cultural moment? What was or is going to be your word to them today? Yeah, thanks so much. Today, we're thinking together about how we can be people, of, be people of civility in a day that is anything but, at a time when we're so split apart, when we're so divided on so many levels. In fact, I'm thinking what I'm going to write for tomorrow. We we'll don't know, obviously, what the results will be tonight necessarily. But the thing I'm especially concerned about, guys, is the degree to which perhaps on an unprecedented level, we're not just opposed to the other side's candidate, we're opposed to the other side's followers. We're at a place now where the two parties are calling the other party evil and racist and dangerous to America's future. And I'm very concerned about this. George Friedman is speaking into this, David Brooks. I've seen some things that David French has written, others on this, that this is kind of unprecedented for us as Americans. It's always been true that we were willing to criticize the other person's candidate, but to criticize the other person's followers on this level is really dangerous to democracy and to its future. And that's going to outlive this election. So I'm really hoping 
will be people of civility, people empowered by the Holy Spirit to make a difference, a salt and light in a very divided and divisive day. So I'm always encouraged when people way smarter than me agree with what we've been saying on the show. So (laughs) thanks for that, because I I feel like that's the drum that Brian and I have been beating for a few weeks now. And I, I think what I find challenging is that often people don't know that they're behaving that way. Like they'll read an article that says what you just said. And they're like, yeah, my neighbor down the street needs to stop being so hateful. They're awful. Like there's, there's this innate desire to point the finger that somebody else is the problem with what you're talking about. How do you help people better identify like their own hostility, the ways that they're demeaning or denigrating other people in particularly a political discourse? And of course, and this has nothing to do with us, right? Right, of course. <laughs> this is only other people because yeah. we're very clear on this ourselves, right? And so really, I think there are two pieces that are kind of in play here. One of them is confirmation bias. It's mm-hmm. the it's the desire on my part only to listen to people with whom I agree, right? Only to listen to social media or to curate my feeds in such a way that I'm only around people with whom I agree and whose opinions I respect, that sort of thing. And so when I get outside of that, I'm really not practiced and how to relate to, how to talk to people outside that, because it's, an, it's a win-lose kind of a deal. It's a zero-sum, conflictual deal just to begin with. Mm. You're the different tribe. You're opposed to me. I'm not living in a world where I'm interacting enough with people of different positions and viewpoints. And so I'm not very good at it. And I see it as conflictual in ways I shouldn't. The mm. other piece is Matthew 18:15, where Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, you have to go to him. What that means in this conversation, I think, is I'm not allowed to say about you what I won't say to you. Mm. Social media is a huge issue there. I can be anonymous. I can pretend to be somebody else. I can slander in ways I never would in person. I can say things about a political candidate or political followers I would never say to their face. So if I understand I'm not allowed to say about you what I won't say to you, and I'm willing to engage outside my tribe more often than is typical, those are two practical steps that I think can help us towards civility. That's mm. really good. Jim, if this is the current we're all living in culturally and you know echo chambers and confirmation bias, what are one or two steps that maybe people who are listening uh, could take to kind of get out of that stream and start heading in the other direction, start being a more of a positive influence? What maybe comes to mind of one or two steps we could take? Yeah, really practical question, Brian. Thanks. First thing to do is to pay attention really to the news that you're consuming. It's really important if you're doing biblical translation, and all of us know this, that you want different versions. Mm-hmm. New American Standard might be really literal, whereas the message might be more of a paraphrase. And NIV or ESV might be someplace in the middle, dynamic equivalent, that sort of thing. It's the same right. thing with news. For instance, just to be practical about this, if I tend to be very conservative by nature, so I'm primarily watching Fox or I'm consuming uh, online content that might be in that direction, might be paying more attention to the blaze, let's say, or to Breitbart, something like that, then I need to intentionally every single day go read the New York Times. Every Mm -hmm. single day go read the Washington Post. I need to every day pay attention to a journalist with whom I most disagree. If I'm conservative, I'm probably not going to find much that Paul Krugman says in the New York Times with whom I agree, which is why I need to read him even more. Mm. I need to be intentional about making certain that I'm consuming content with which I disagree so I can build a relationship with people who follow in that train. So I know what they're thinking. I'm aware of what the worldview is, and I can build rapport. It's Jesus and John 4 going to the well because the woman came to the well. And on that relational foundation, being able to build a bridge to the future. That's such a good example. I'm going to set you up here, which is not something that we typically do in this way. (laughs) A little later in the show, we're going to do an article uh, out of time that Andy Stanley wrote. And he asked the question, 
what should Christians do if their candidate loses the election? And I, I've been dying to ask you the same question. What What would you say would be one or two things that you'd suggest the Christ follower do if their candidate loses? Yeah, first thing we have to do, obviously, First Timothy 2, is pray for whoever wins. Yeah. Here's Paul telling them to pray for Nero. Think about that. If Christians could pray for Nero, we certainly can pray for whoever wins the presidential election here. But it's not just pray for them. And it's not just praying for them in some kind of an obligatory way. It's participating in the process. It's engaging with local leaders. It's being involved in decisions as they come down the way. I was, not long ago, I was talking to someone in political office who said, most people have no idea the degree to which a single email or a single call to the office makes a huge difference. In the restaurant world, they think for every complaint about food, there are 20 people that felt the same way and just didn't say so. Well, there's that world inside this. If you'll be involved in the political process and engage leaders with whom you disagree, you'll make a difference. You'll have an influence in what they're doing in a way you might not imagine. But then the other piece about this is I'm going to be engaging all day long with people who voted for the person I voted against. It's far more important that we win souls and that we win debates. Mm -hmm. Far more important that we preserve our witness for the sake of Jesus' glory than that we try to relitigate an election for the sake of my hurt feelings. So let's take a larger kingdom view here and decide that every person I meet is someone for whom Jesus died. Yeah. Jim, we're thrilled that you're going to join us for a second segment. I'm just curious. We'll, we'll touch on this in the second uh, segment as well. But where can people read your stuff? They might be hearing you going, oh, I really do want to get his newsletter or whatever else. Where can people find what you're talking about? Yeah, thank you. Denisonforum.org is the website, D-E-N-I-S-O-N forum.org. They can see the daily article there. They can subscribe if they'd like to do that. They can see all of the white papers that are there. The book on civility came out recently, all that. We're a donor-based ministry, so we can give all of our digital content away. And so it's all free and uh, obviously available across sectarian lines. We have uh, subscribers in 203 countries around the wow. world. And uh, yeah, it's just a real privilege. That's just what digital media allows us to do these days. So the website's the place to start, denisonforum.org. Our guest today is Jim Dennison, founder of the Denison Forum. And not to put words in his mouth, I also think maybe friend of the show is a fair title. <laughs> and uh, he, he's been kind enough to join us for one more segment as we kind of take a deeper dive into how Christians can engage in this election season. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, and we're thrilled to have for a second segment, founder of the Denison Forum, Jim Denison. You can learn more at denisonforum.org. I highly encourage you to do so. There's a lot of great resources. I've been keeping up with your blog, Jim, and I think it's phenomenal. It's it's cutting through the noise of what a lot of our social media feeds look like right now. And just to say it out loud, immensely grateful for you and your leadership and your voice. And you were mentioning something during the break, actually, that I would love to ask you about because I don't I don't hear a lot of people talking about this right now. And you were you were referencing the significance for Christians to model joy in the midst of like really chaotic times. And I I really had to rack my brain thinking, when was the last time I like heard a political or religious leader writing about the need for joy? And you were saying often we're known for what we're against, not what we're for. And I'd love for you to unpack that idea a little bit more. Why why is it why is it really significant for Christians to model joy right now? 
Yeah, and thank you for that. And the reason during the break I was saying that for the listeners to know that is because I so appreciate the way you guys model that. And I really mean that, guys, the degree to which you really do demonstrate the fact that you can follow Jesus with joy. And there really can be a great relationship in the midst of all of this. Well, a lot of evangelicals are focused in the culture wars, as they're called, on specific issues of enormous consequence, obviously, from abortion to same-sex marriage to euthanasia to all the issues we're fighting these days. I would never for a moment want to downplay the significance of what's in play right now, the issues that are in front of us. But in the midst of all of that, the Lord really again and again in Scripture, as you know, speaks of joy as a fruit of the Spirit. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. The word blessed, makarios in the Greek, means a sense of joy that transcends circumstance. Mm -hmm. Joy ought to be at the heart of our witness. We ought to be showing the larger world that whether we agree or disagree, there's a joy that we find in Jesus that transcends the moment, it transcends the challenges, transcends all the divisiveness of the day. Evangelicals are not known for that as we should be. People outside of us would wonder if I came to church, would it be a difficult, divisive time? When, when's the last time someone had fun with religion is kind of the idea here. Mm-hmm. Well, people ought to see the joy of Jesus and the followers of Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. They ought to see the joy of the Lord in us. And we can do that even in difficult subject if the Holy Spirit is manifesting that fruit through us. Mm-hmm. Jim, we've talked a little bit here about people, Christians particularly, being too invested in politics. But what about the other end of the spectrum, the Christ follower who says we should just worry about the gospel and the mission, not politics at all, the church shouldn't be involved with this? What about the the person who says, you know what, I don't think we as Christ followers should be involved in politics at all? I get that, Brian. I really do, especially these days. It's certainly easier to pull back from that. I can be worried about my witness. It can be that I'm afraid I'll be divisive if I get involved. I don't really want to go there. It discourages me. And so I'm just going to kind of pull back and be a red-letter Christian, as they call it, somebody that kind of focuses on the teachings of Jesus and the love of Jesus and kind of leave all of that out. Well, the big problem with that is we're not following the model of Jesus if we do that. Jesus himself was engaged, as you know, in every dimension of life. He was worried about physical need as well as spiritual need. He spoke into the needs and the issues of the day, and Paul did the same thing. A lot of Paul's theology, as you know, is task theology, where he's writing to very specific issues and showing biblical truth and wisdom. You think about the biblical prophets and think about the degree to which they were engaged with the culture of the day. So at the end of the day, we're salt and light. Salt's no good in the salt shaker. Light's no good (laughs) under the basket. So we need the Lord to give us courage and conviction as we speak graciously, as we speak the truth in love. But nonetheless, we're called to speak the truth. That's really good. I'm I'm curious why you think it's so common for Christians. And maybe this is more a Western thing than a global thing. But why is it so common or why is the temptation so strong to live sort of a, I don't know, a siloed Christian life? Like, well, it's I have my sacred acts, my Sunday, and then like the rest of my life. God doesn't really care about my work or my politics or my neighborhood. He cares about me praying a prayer and then going to heaven when I die. Like, why why do you think it's so tempting for us to sort of segment our faith like that? Oh, Ian, thank you so much for that. So my background's in philosophy. That's my doctorate, and that's what I've taught over all these years. And so my friends would tell you, if you've got three hours, I'd love to answer that question. I'd love to <laughs> Such a I massive, mean, massive issue. It, absolute enormous issue. So I'll do it in 30 seconds if I can. Orphic cult, six centuries before Christ, says your soul existed in a pre-incarnate state. It would sin, we would say, it was punished by being put in your body. And the point of life is to purify your soul so it can go back where it came from. All right. That idea influenced Pythagoras, who influenced Plato, who influenced the entire Western world. 
So the Western world makes this distinction between the soul and the body and the spiritual and the secular and religion and the real world. The Roman gods, the Greek gods, you didn't want a personal relationship with them. You had a transactional religion where mm. sacrifice to the gods so they'll bless your crops so they'll keep you safe in war or whatever. Well, that's what we've inherited in the West is this Sunday versus Monday, spiritual versus secular stuff. That's unbiblical. The mm. Bible's holistic. Jesus said, if you'll follow me, you have to take up your cross daily, present your body a living sacrifice, be crucified with Christ. Every dimension of us should belong to Jesus if he's Lord of our lives. So what you just pointed to is the Western hypocrisy and heresy that separates Sunday from Monday, this kind of spiritual schizophrenia. That's unbiblical. Jesus Mm. cares about every part of life, and he wants us to do the same thing. And that was two seminary classes in 60 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Well done. Jim, we often talk on this show about uh, the effects of social media in the church, in our culture. Uh, as you kind of think about things like this, what's some words of advice that you would give some people, particularly about the dangers of social media and how you think social media could be used for good and not really how it's being used in our culture right now? And I'm glad you said for good, Brian. Absolutely. Because again, the easy thing is just get off, pull back. I'll tell you guys, I'm pretty well and convinced that if Paul was alive today, he'd be all over social media. Mm-hmm. Paul was using the technology of the day, the Roman roads of the day, the Greek language, the epistles of the day, the trade routes of the day. Paul was doing everything he could to be all things to all men that he might by all means see some come to Christ. I absolutely believe he'd be engaged in social media today, but he'd be doing it redemptively. And it goes on two levels. First of all, be careful of what you're consuming. Read it through the lens of scripture. Read it through the lens of absolute truth, objective biblical truth. Don't assume it's true because somebody said it. Then the other way around, be so careful of the anonymity that allows you to say about people what you wouldn't say to them. We're not allowed to slander. We're not allowed to say things that don't honor our Lord. So use these platforms as chances to share your witness, to share your faith, Mm -hmm. to share the difference Jesus makes in your life, to amplify your voice, but do it for his glory, not for ours. Otherwise, we're, we're advancing our kingdom rather than his. Oh, that's a good word. I, I listened to an interview with Dr. Cornell West recently, and he, he said a phrase mm. that I found so fascinating. He says, I'm hopeful, but not optimistic. And he, <laughs> he, you know, he rooted that in his understanding of Scripture and God's involvement in the world. I, I'd love to know on this most contentious of election days and my, you know, my newsfeed, I'm sure like yours, is filled with all sorts of opposing viewpoints, some of them you know, maybe more aggressive than others. Uh, I'd love to know, are, are you hopeful? Are you optimistic? Maybe what's a, a word of encouragement or, or life that you'd like to speak to our audience? Yeah, thank you. And I am hopeful, obviously, because our hope is in Christ, not in this world. Relative to optimism, I understand what Cornell West is saying. He's brilliant on so many levels. We're seeing a divisiveness now, not just relative to the candidate, but relative to the followers that really does concern me. Mm. I'm seeing David Brooks write about that and David French and George Friedman and others. The idea that the other side is evil, the other side is dangerous, the other side, it must be opposed way past the election. That's very concerning Mm. to me. That really is unprecedented for us. And social media makes that more possible possible, the 24-7 news cycles that keeps everything inflamed for the sake of attention and clicks and selling and all of that is part of it as well. And the fact that the issues are so deep now, from abortion to euthanasia to same-sex marriage, and so perennial, that we really are in some ways in uncharted territory as a democracy. At that point, it's even more urgent, therefore, that we reframe this crisis as an opportunity for us to speak the truth, but do it in love, do it in grace, recognize the more the person opposes me, the more they need what Jesus is in my life. 
see this as the opportunity for the gospel rather than as the opposition to the gospel that we would otherwise see it as and rise to the challenge in the glory for the glory of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. Oh gosh, that's so good. Our guest today has been Jim Dennison, founder of the Dennison Forum. You can learn more and I recommend that you do so. Dennisonforum.org. Jim, you are always such a gracious, winsome, generous guest. Thank you so much for making the time to be with us today. Ian and Brian, I am so glad to be on with you guys. So grateful for what you're doing, praying for you, and doing so with gratitude. Likewise. Thank you so Thank much. You. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. I didn't want to spend the entire day talking politics, Brian, because I thought right. that, that might get uh, a bit old. Plus, neither of us are political scientists, so not only would it get old, it would probably be unhelpful. So... Uh, how about an article about cats? What do you think of that? I think it's wonderful. It's a great diversion from all that's going on around us. Mm -hmm. All right. So this is, uh, this is from the guardian, John Gray. What can we learn from cats? Don't live in an imagined future. Why don't you get us into it? Yep. What's it like to be a cat? John Gray has spent a lifetime half wondering. The philosopher has had feline companions at home since he was a boy in South Shields. In adult life, this was has principally been the pair, uh, two pairs of cats, two Burmese sisters, he said, Sophie and Sarah, and two Burman brothers, Jamie and Julian. Uh, the last of them died at the age of 23. Man, uh, Gray, currently catless, is by no means a sentimental writer, but his new book, Feline Philosophy, Cats and the Meaning of Life, is written in the memory of their shared wisdom. Other philosophers have been enthralled by cats over the years. Uh, Michael D. Montaigne, who famously asked, when I'm playing with my cat, how do I know she is not playing with me? <laughs> That's really funny. The rationalist Rene Descartes, uh, Gray notes, once hurled a cat out of the window in order to demonstrate the absence of conscience awareness in non-human animals. It, its terrified screams were mechanical reactions, he concluded. <laughs> One impulse for this book was a conversation with a fellow philosopher who assured Gray that he had taught his cat to be vegan. Uh <laughs> When he informed another philosopher that he was writing about uh, what he can learn from cats, that man replied, but cats have no history. And Gray wondered, is that necessarily a disadvantage? <laughs> I want to hang out with these guys. This is funny. <laughs> Elsewhere, Gray has written uh, how Ludwig Wittgenstein once observed, if lions could talk, we would not understand, to which the zookeeper responded, he hasn't spent long enough with lions. If cats could talk, I ask Gray, do you think we would understand? He says, well, the book is in some ways an experiment in that respect. Of course, it's not a scientific inquiry, but if you live with a cat very closely for a long time, and it takes a long time because they're slow to trust, slow to really enter into communication with you, then you could probably imagine how they might philosophize. Uh, Gray believes that humans turn to philosophy principally out of anxiety, looking for some tranquility in a chaotic and frightening world telling themselves stories that might provide the illusion of calm. Cats, he suggests, wouldn't recognize that need because they naturally revert to equilibrium whenever they're not hungry or threatened. If cats were to give advice, it would be for their own amusement. <laughs> so let's pause there for a sec. Let's just start very foundationally. I think we've talked about this, but you grew up with cats, right? You a cat guy? I, well, those are two questions. Very two, two very different questions. That is true. I did grow up with cats. I don't know that I would call myself a cat guy, but uh, a number of my siblings have had cats into adulthood as well. They're big fans. They make strong cases for cats. I don't think any of them necessarily have been mentioned in this article just yet, but I like cats. I, you know, I'm more of a, 
does it shed kind of stage of my life? I'm like, I don't know. I don't know that I need that in my life. Uh, Are you a cat guy? Grew up with two cats, but now we have two dogs. So I I am very, uh, I very much prefer the dog. Uh, I know you don't necessarily have to choose one or the other, but it seems like most people do. Uh, I, I can remember though, people always give cats a hard time. Like they are not lovable and stuff. I remember a cat growing up, my cat, his name was Rocky. And uh, Rocky would sleep on my bed every night, would cuddle. Like I, I took great joy in our cat growing up. So I, I don't, I'm not anti-cat like a lot of people out there are. But right now, two dogs in the house. So I guess I have to be a dog guy for now. <laughs> okay, so I'm, I'm curious what you think, at the very least, of his, uh, his premise regarding what we can learn from cats. I, I think it's really interesting because, first of all, I find philosophers, we kind of joked on the way through as we were going through it, but they're just kind of hilarious, right? <laughs> like... Uh, sometimes not, not always. I know, I know. Um, but, but I think this concept that, uh, his point being that we worry so much about the future, we're constantly projecting what's coming. And his point being cats don't do that. He said, they go back to equilibrium. They, he didn't actually say this in what we're saying, but, but more or less they, they live in the present, uh, which is as humans impossible to do fully. But his point being as a philosopher, we get so much of our anxiety and so much of our stress uh, by projecting what might happen, what could be coming, what's the worst case scenario down the down the road. And Gray seems to be pointing out from a philosopher's angle, uh, we could learn from cats who just kind of go about their day, who just kind of go about what's coming. And again, we're much more complex than that. So that you can't do this 100%. But I think he says there's something that could be learned from that posture. Do you, do you think that is uh, a wise posture to not live in an imagined future? Uh, to a point, again, you can't only live in the present. We, we, you got to give thought to your future. But I do know in my own life, man, I, I, a lot of things that I most stress and have most anxiety about are things that might have a kernel of truth, but that I have grown to be much bigger than that, you know, for a week from now, a year from now, whether it be, you know, about my job and my church, whether it be about my kids, whether it be just about uh, the pandemic or the presidential election or something. I think there is something to be said here about needing to be careful about not, 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 um, not worrying about what is actually coming, but even more so what he's saying, it kind of spinning it always to the worst case scenario. Well, what could happen here? Well, uh, my kids are never going back to school and they're going to be this and they're going to be that. And, and, and I do think this imagined future, I think that's important way to put it. Uh, can be really debilitating for a lot of us. I know I struggle with that. I don't know if you do. I do struggle with uh, spinning things and worrying about things and then and then going, what exactly am I worried about? I'm worried about like if this domino fell and that domino fell and that domino fell, and it may not be worth worrying about at the moment because, you know, let's, uh, so, so you do need to plan. You can't be like, well, I'm not going to think about the future, but this allowing the future to be the root of our worry. I do think he's got a point here. Well, I'm, I'm uh, wondering what, insight you would give what suggestions to someone who shares that same that same affliction they're thinking yeah i i also i also do that i can uh get caught in a bit of a tailspin worrying about the future fixating even like what have, what have you found to be helpful i'm going to give two very church answers here because for me they they are true one is uh this is one of the things where i need to spend the most concentrated effort in prayer whether it's out prayer or like out walking or just praying. And, and like that, I'm not a big journal guy, but these are the types of things that, that are really helpful for me. I carry a journal in my computer bag 
these are the things that are helpful for me to kind of write out like, okay, here's kind of the pathway that I'm seeing. So, so I find myself oftentimes praying and, and giving some like very specific journal thoughts towards future things more than present uh, so that I don't unravel like this. Is this something you struggle with or, or are you better at just kind of being in the present? Uh, I, it's something that I've consciously worked at. I think I, I interesting. It, for me, it's not so much anxiety about the future. It's just fixation on achieving. That's You mentioned briefly yesterday on our Enneagram article, the three is the achiever. So that that is sort of constantly humming either in the foreground or background of my brain. So for me, I will often struggle to be present because I'm like dreaming and or strategizing in my head three months, six months, 12 months, 10 years down the road, um, which, again, I'm really grateful for you know close friends and family who have been able to identify that and call me, you know, on the carpet on it. Like, Hey, you're not really living in this moment. And I, I thought actually it's a long article. It's really interesting. It's a, it's not the kind of thing that I think we've ever read on the show, but here's, here's how the article ends. It says cats live for the sensation of life, not for something that they might achieve or not achieve. If we attach ourselves too heavily to some overarching, overarching purpose, we're losing the joy of life. Leave all those ideologies and religions to one side and what's left What's left is a sensation of life, which is a wonderful thing. Again, just say it out loud. Brian and I are both pastors, so I probably wouldn't necessarily agree with the religion part of that statement. Exactly. But, <laughs> but it is it is certainly, I think, an interesting perspective, especially on today of all days, which feels like a sneak attack because I said, ah, oh, we're not going to talk about the election. And this is still, in a couple of ways, a little bit about the election. But either way, that's up on the Facebook page, the Common Good Radio Show. We would love to know what you think about that there. Coming up next, though, we're going to read an article from Andy Stanley, which reads, What Christians Should Do If Their Candidate Loses the 2020 Election. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope you like Coming up this hour, we're going to talk some more politics, but we're going to sneak in an article about Bruce Springsteen and aging well. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. How, how are you doing, listener? If, you're, if your jaw is clenched or your shoulders are raised, why don't you take a deep breath, maybe sit back in your chair or wherever you're you're listening. Sometimes that's just a good reminder. I, there was a there was a season where a bunch of people were sharing the same meme that was essentially like, "Hey, you're leaning forward too, too or you're too close to the screen, or your breathing is too shallow, or whatever." And every time I like I would see it, I was like, "Shoot, that's me!" Like it was always <laughs> it like always caught me off guard. Like how do they know? So my guess is maybe somebody else listening. Your uh, your body is more tense than you realize, and. Uh, Maybe now would be a good time to take a breather. Let me let, let you in on a couple of couple of particulars, some inside baseball here at the show. Uh, we're on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good, Instagram and Twitter at Common Good Talk, and wherever it is you get your podcasts. We know that there's a lot of noise out there, and uh, any subscribing, rating, reviewing, sharing, that all helps us out a bunch, and we're really grateful for those of you who have done that already. This is an article out of time, but it's written by none other than friend of the show, Andy Stanley. Can we call him he doesn't the know show? Yet, but... Well, he tweeted us once. He did. That's right. right. Does that count? I mean, I guess it was a reply to a tweet, so that's not quite the same. So let's have him on, and we'll ask him. Can we call you a friend? I think I think he'd enjoy that. I think that 
you feel like if we say it on the show, it's like destined to happen. You're like, it's true. It's like, this is like your vision board. Like just, (laughs) just will it into existence and it's destined to happen, which, you know, whatever works. Anyway, it's Andy Stanley. It's writing a very Andy Stanley type article. What Christians should do if their candidate loses the 2020 election. Do you want to kick us off? I do. And I'm glad we're not doing the article that's right next to it under related stories. That's called buying a gun won't solve an election crisis. But uh, Mm. here we go. Uh, I do find it interesting that Andy Stanley being asked to write at time. So he begins the article by talking about the divisiveness all around us. And we all feel it. He's basically saying and he goes on to say none of this divisiveness is pleasant, but a lack of unity among Christians is especially troublesome. Apparently, Jesus saw this coming, not the election, but the division. In fact, he made it a matter of prayer after he ate his final meal with his disciples. Jesus was about to die, and he prayed, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one. In the first century, all of them meant Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, slaves and free, tax gatherers, and those from whom taxes were gathered, the educated and the uneducated. Now, everybody. Now, in the 21st century, it means Republicans and Democrats, the privileged and underprivileged, the independent, the undecided, the libertarians, the black and brown, the white, the married, the single, the divorced, everyone. In that conversation with his disciples, Jesus basically said, look, I'm about to leave. Here's one thing I don't want you to forget. I'm giving you a new command to replace all the other commands. It's very simple. Love one another. As I've loved you, you're to love one another. Jesus said the world would know that they were his followers by the way they loved one another. Uh, Why would we as followers of an eternal king allow ourselves to be divided by temporary political systems, leaders, and platforms? He says, your political candidate will win or lose based on how American citizens vote on a Tuesday in November. But the church wins or loses. The community wins or loses, and in some way, our nation wins or loses based on how Christians love each other. That's why Jesus said we must not allow anything or anyone to divide us. As we consider candidates and policies, there's one question Christians must be asking. What does love require of us? Our hope is not in a perfect political party. Our hope is the message and teaching of Jesus. During a short, oh-so-short history as a nation, Both of our current political parties and their leaders have gotten it wrong. They failed morally. They failed with leadership. Uh, Jesus's most oft repeated command was fear not, fear not, fear not. Instead, we must love one another as we struggle and sacrifice for the unity that Jesus prayed for. Let me stop there. Uh, Like you said, a very Andy Stanley article. But man, this call for two things here, unity. And where's that unity come from? From the love that we show one another that looks different. Uh, I have found myself uh, preaching overtly about this right now and slipping it into sermons right now. Like I feel like this is Ooh, such sneaky. an important, exactly. I feel like this is such an important message right now, especially on election day. And when people are going, is there going to be violence and, and craziness tonight, depending on who wins this call to the church uh, to unity and love, I think is just so in my mind, you, you just can't overstate uh, how important this is right now. So what do you think are some of the, the asterisks? Because this is such, this is why I wanted to ask uh, another pastor about this, because this is the type of article that um, I'm finding that often people will read and not in agreement. And they're like, yeah, yeah, I totally, yep, that's 100% right. There's nothing controversial about his perspective or his writing or what he's saying. 
and then go and live as if n- none of what Andy just wrote is actually true. Right. Like, do we? Am, am I even thinking about it? Thinking about it in the right way? Do people let themselves off the hook? Like, yes, live in unity, except for that guy, or they're <laughs> so politically off base, or they're so theologically in left field, or you know what I mean? Like, do we do that? Are we cognizant of like a a list that we create, or is it? Do we find it just too difficult or not valuable enough or Jesus wasn't totally serious or like, what do you think are some of the, I don't think the major hurdles to this particular call is that Christians read and go wrong. No, <laughs> love doesn't matter. Unity doesn't matter. I don't think that's what's happening. That's not been my experience. Yeah. So I'd love to know from your perspective, especially someone who's been sneak attacking his congregation with words on unity. What, what are the hurdles? What's what really keeps us from this? That sounds a little more devious than it's been, but uh, I would say a couple things come to mind. One is we get caught up in the moment, man. You're on Facebook and you're scrolling through and emotions get high or you're in that conversation and emotions get high and you start to lash out or you you kind of lose sight of this. So I think part of it's just emotion. And I think you touched on another one. Uh, whereas Jesus makes it clear very much throughout the, you know, through, uh, throughout his teachings, we don't wait to love others. Uh, we don't wait for others to love us before we love others. I do think we probably, I do this where you go, well, that guy's not being so loving. So I'm going to meet him with his unlovingness. Yeah. Uh, if, if he's going to be emotional and combative and, you know, what, partisan and whatever else it might be, uh, then that kind of gives me fair game to do that. Whereas Jesus said quite the opposite. Yeah. Uh, Jesus wasn't being shown love and, and Jesus still loved. And so those are the two that come to mind. I'm curious if if you've got any, because for me, I think it's, we just get caught up in the moment. Uh, we, we, a lot of times we post or we talk without even really thinking through this lens. But I do think uh, we react to how others treat us instead of, you know, going, nope, Jesus called me to love even in the midst of kind of uh, unloving people. Well, and that's that's why I think guys like Rich Velotas and his book, The Deeply Formed Life, are are so on the money right now because if it is just simply about behavior modification, like I need to get better at not reacting in the moment or on Facebook or when tempers flare, you're not going to be able to will yourself to just be right. better at that. That's a formation discussion, and you don't you're not just going to wake up tomorrow being a more patient loving, gracious person that has, that has to be formed in us. That's part of what sanctification looks like. And I think sometimes we like hear a great sermon or read a great article. We're like, yes, I'm going to go do that. And then first opportunity (laughs) we fail and we're like, never mind, you know, we like the abandoned ship. So I want to read the rest. It's, there's not a lot left, but how he ends this article, I think is a good call for us today. I mean, every day, but today in particular, he says, I have two suggestions for Christians during the days before and after this election. First, Pray like Jesus prayed. Let's pray for oneness among Christians. Second, find a way to love someone with whom you disagree politically. Listen, learn, and love unconditionally. If you're thinking, well, I don't even know anybody I disagree with politically, that's a problem. Can I push a little bit? Maybe that's why you're so convinced you're right. If you're thinking, Mm. I can't understand how anybody could believe that, then you just made a confession. There's something you don't understand, and you can seek understanding. I invite you to seek out an opportunity to unconditionally love someone with whom you disagree politically. Christians can disagree politically, but we must love unconditionally and pray for unity. Fear should not fuel our actions. Love is the power we need, and love must fuel both our conversations and choices. The gospel will spread just as Jesus intended when we, Christians across America, are willing to humble ourselves 
and seek unity in love. Again, not surprising. I just think that's well-written and super, super timely. And I wanted to kind of bridge this segment with the next segment coming up next by a man named Scott Sauls, who I think we can legitimately call a friend of the show, maybe. That's right. His article is entitled Loving as Jesus Does in a Hate-Filled Time. That's coming up next year on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. Happy Election Day. Somebody may be thinking, is it happy? I I mean, why not? Oh, I haven't done holidays in a while, have I? Did we do yesterday's? I don't think we did. No. Oh, That's a man. big miss. Get out. Well, today you'll be happy to know is National Sandwich Day. Okay. We could just stop right there. <laughs> like, is this, that is, is this going like, to be Brian Fromm's hot take that you're really into sandwiches? That is like, that's going to fall somewhere around Christmas and Thanksgiving for me. I will celebrate this holiday today. <laughs> I, I wish I could say I was surprised by this response, Brian. Oh, my <laughs> man, do I love sandwiches. Yes. It's such a blanket. But there's so many. That's like saying I just love, I don't even know what an example would be, all music. Well, that can't be true. Sandwiches, it's such a broad category. Just all sandwiches? Uh, for the most part. I, I, I love the genre of sandwich. How does that sound? <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> I believe it's pronounced genre, Brian. Genre. Genre of sandwiches. Um, I, will go, I will go to my favorite sandwich shop and be and celebrate today. How does that sound? I mean, I'm Hopefully. with that. I mean, I haven't been to like a legit sandwich shop in a while. Anyway, I know. I, I, I digress. I digress. I, I miss sandwich shop. I mean, I'm with you. I'm being a little cheeky. I also, I love a good sandwich. When we go oh, to yeah. like lunch places, people are like, I'm not in the mood for a sandwich. I'm always like, what do you mean? What You have to be in a mood for a 100%. sandwich? 100%. It's, it, it, are there sandwiches in my proximity? I would like one, please. That's, that's <laughs> I will my find general that. disposition. Yeah. <laughs> That has nothing to do with what we're about to talk about. It does actually sort of link to the Andy Stanley article we did in the previous segment. If you missed that, you can listen via the podcast. All the articles, as always, are posted to our Facebook page, the Common Good Radio Show. Scott Sauls, which I have to tip my hat every time we do a Scott Sauls article. I do believe it was you, Brian Fromm, that initially turned me on to Scott Sauls when we started the show. And now it's a little embarrassing because I think you would ask me, like, hey, do you follow this guy? And I was like, the name sort of sounds familiar and you're like oh stop what you're doing <laughs> Follow him on Twitter. <laughs> i was like boy he's really into this guy two years later i totally see why like i think he's yeah. a he's a prolific voice and a great pastor great writer has got a number of really really killer books he wrote this a few days ago loving as jesus does in a hate filled time what is going on here yeah let me read this and uh, as you said about scott Sauls, it is one of the fun things about doing a show like this like you and I, I'd love to sit down and make a list of the people who before it was like, oh, I really admire that person from afar that we've now had the chance to talk to. That is pretty cool. And, uh, so Scott's been on a couple of times and we're grateful for him. He starts uh, with a quote from Anne Lamont from Traveling Mercies. It says, you can safely assume that you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. That is mm -hmm. the mic drop right there from the front. He said, Which, I'm by the way, if you've not read Traveling Mercies, let, let me please. Maybe now more than ever. Phenomenal book. I think it would be I think it would translate to today really, really well. Huh. He says, uh, I have not read it, but that, that is uh, maybe I will. He says, I am tired, tired of taking sides. That is, are you? Are you tired of gossip and negative caricatures? Are you tired of labeling and being labeled? Are you tired of political caricatures and cable news outrage? Are you tired of opinions being presented as facts? Are you tired of critiques and condemnations that forgo listening and relationships? Are you tired of indignant blog posts and tweets and Facebook posts that take a stand against everyone but that persuade no one? 
Are you tired of divisions over silly and secondary things? Are you tired of racism, classism, sexism, generationalism, nationalism, denominationalism, doctrinalism, and all other isms that stem from the ism that feeds all of them, elitism? Are you tired of the glass being half empty? Are you tired of the endless quest to find something to be mad about? Are you tired of us against God, us against them, and us against ourselves? Mm. Are you tired of the ways that you two have succumbed to the againstness of it all? Let me just stop there and say I might have answered yes to every one of his questions right mm. there. I don't know why uh, he has to I take do... a swing at you too, though. That didn't seem fair. Exactly. I, I do think that uh, that's a great way to frame this discussion, don't you think? I do think, yes, a lot of us, a lot of people are outraged or cynical or sad, but I do think also a lot of us are tired. And and I think what he's going to get into is what do you do with that tiredness? Because one of the dangers of just feeling tired uh, is being able to just say, then I'm out, right? Like I'm just going to uh, disengage. I, I can't take this anymore. And the real question is, what do we do when we're kind of weary of all this stuff? But don't you think he's kind of this is how I often feel right now. Like, man, I'm just tired of the opinions. I'm tired of the post. I'm just tired of all of this division right now. Yeah, I think part of what I have found intriguing is so many people have been making statements like, oh, I can't wait till Election Day for this to be over. And I. I often want to ask, what 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 is the this? Like the campaign ads might stop, but we've certainly exactly. adopted, and I'm using we very loosely, but we've adopted a particular posture, philosophy, a way, a way of being in the world that for a lot of us is really toxic. It's really, it's either exhausting or it's like constantly triggering or, you know what I mean? Like there's, there's one thing to look for, look to today as sort of like an end to what many of us find an exhausting season, but there's a lot about, you know, our character, our own formation, that's going to live on well, well past today that I think we would do well to, to think about. In fact, I don't think we've ever actually tackled this specific phrase before, but he goes on to say political cartoonist and New York times op-ed writer, Tim Creeder, who concedes that his job requires him to be professionally furious, describes a modern epidemic that he calls outrage porn. This is something that I've heard a lot of people talk about. And I, I think it's, um, it's it's almost like a crude way to describe it, but I think it's helpful. He says, so many letters to the editor and comments on the Internet have this tone of thrilled vindication. These are people who have been vigilant, uh, vigilantly on the lookout for something to be offended by and found it. Obviously, some part of us loves feeling one right and two wronged. But outrage is like a lot of other things that feel good, but over time devour us from the inside out, except it's even more insidious than most vices because. We don't even consciously acknowledge that it's a pleasure. We prefer to think of it as a dis- as a disagreeable but fundamentally healthy reaction to negative stimuli like pain or nausea rather than admit that it's a shameful kick. We eagerly indulge again and again. It is outrage porn selected specifically to uh, pander to our impulse to judge and punish to get us off on righteous indignation. Hmm. Scott Salz goes on to say the commitment to feel one right and wronged is a fairly common phenomenon. But is this a fruitful way for Christians in uh, particular to engage in public conversations about the issues of the day? Jesus taught us a different way. So why don't you, uh, with the time we have left, Brian, <laughs> give us some of the different way that he's talking about. Yeah, he says, Tim Keller says tolerance isn't about having beliefs. It's about how you treat people you disagree with. 
Uh, and he uh, goes on to say, uh, I'm talking about true, pure, undefiled, unfiltered, and altogether biblical and beautiful system of belief, the one that leads people to trust God and have hope for humanity, to visit orphans and widows in their afflictions, to love our neighbors who are near and who are in need, <clears throat> to extend kindness to enemies. Matthew chapter 5, right? You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be of your father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward did you have? He goes on to say, Jesus did not merely speak these words as an edict from on a high. He became these words. Mm. God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And there's so much good stuff in here. But really, I mean, you've been talking about, I believe you guys are preaching through the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. Mm -hmm. and. And that basically that's the answer, right? Like this is our chance to live these things out the opposite ways of Jesus in this time that we live in. And in the last segment, you made a really important point that this isn't about just trying harder to do. This is formational. This is as we uh, become more connected to the vine, if you will. Uh, but it's as we understand the love and grace shown to us by Jesus that we then begin to extend it to other people, that that's the backwardness of the kingdom that we are called to do that, especially in this time right now, is going to look so counterculturally different. Yeah, and he reminds us at the very end, too. And again, I'm skipping over a bunch of really so much good, good stuff. stuff yeah, I, I really, especially today, I would I would encourage you read this and sit with this, because much like Stanley's article that we read in the uh, segment before, this just has a lot of really good instruction for us. It says, yet Jesus gave so much of his time, attention, and love to people who did not side with him. A journey through the gospel shows that he was especially tender toward people who did not believe in him or follow him. So what does this mean for us today? What does this mean for how we Christians in particular should relate to those who do not believe as we do? And then he goes on to offer an excerpt from an essay that is just just phenomenal. I would highly encourage you to go and read it. And it would, it's, I mean, it's long, it's long even for Saul's. So I, I'd encourage you to to take a deep dive into that because I think uh, I just think it's really really helpful, especially mm -hmm. in our divided time. Uh, with that, you want to talk a little Bruce Springsteen? I absolutely do. Of course you do. <laughs> As a New Jerseyan, yes, I do. Uh, I, I was hoping you. I was hoping you'd feel that way. We again come come on up for air a little bit. This is a uh, this is our cat segment that we did in the first hour. We're going to pull away a little bit from the election and the election season, and we're going to talk about Bruce Springsteen and aging well. That's coming up next year on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. I know that uh, today's show maybe felt a bit more heavily slanted toward the election and the election season and maybe some conversations around how Christians should conduct themselves. I don't think we've mentioned COVID once, which nope. maybe that's maybe that's a win. Maybe that's worth. You remember back in March when we're like, hey, sorry for talking about COVID three days in a row. Little did we know that yes. we'd be doing it a lot of days in a row. So I wanted to kind of take a pause from that a bit, but also even in today's show to have uh, what we call some moments for air. So this this is not about the election. This is from The Atlantic. It says Bruce Springsteen and the art of aging well. You mentioned before the break as a New Jersey boy. You are yes. happy to talk Springsteen. I assume that's Absolutely. maybe is that part for the course for most people where you're from? It is. There are there are two 
um, main singers, bands that you are just kind of born into when you're from New Jersey. One is Bruce Springsteen. The other is Bon Jovi. And so uh, those are basically the two. So, yes, anybody uh, from Jersey, Bruce Springsteen came to came to light on the Jersey Shore. And so, yeah, not the show, the actual Jersey Shore. Oh, and, thanks for that uh, distinction. I appreciate that. Yes, yes, yes. So, yes, no, anytime it's Bruce Springsteen, I'm, I'm glad to have that discussion. Well, why don't you? It's uh, how you feel about it's how you feel about Kid Rock and Eminem from Detroit. Uh, it's the how, same thing. How dare you? <laughs> if I had access to a bleep button, I would use it right now. On you. <laughs> John, is there a way to disconnect Brian's mic? I, w- I mean, I will say, well, I won't even go there. You- <laughs> <laughs> I know I know that I trigger you with, a, with just mentioning Kid Rock. So I was going to say it's, it's only half of that statement that I anyway. Um, yes. Let's talk a little Bruce Springsteen and aging. Well, you want to start us off? A fascinating article here at The Atlantic by David Brooks. And uh, the, I'm going to skip the beginning of it. But he's basically his point is this. That because of it could be anything, diet, medicine, whatever else it is that like the age of like 73 now uh, is kind of people kind of look and act like they did uh, a couple generations ago when they were in their 50s. Like we, it's just different. Have you ever seen the meme or the uh, the picture of what Wilford Brimley looked like, I believe, uh, in Cocoon? Oh, yeah. And, like this person's the same age of them now. And it's just he looks like he's 30 years older. Right. Right. And so that's kind of the beginning part of this article is that like, listen, we, we now age differently. So what does it matter? So later on, Brooke says Springsteen because Bruce Springsteen just released another album at the age of 71. Uh, And so that's what this is about. It says Springsteen is the world champion of aging. Well, physically, intellectually, spiritually, and emotionally, his new album and film letter to you are performances about growing older and death. Topics that would have seemed unlikely for rock when it was born as a rebellion for anyone over 30. Letter to You is rich in lessons for those who want to know what successful aging looks like. Far from being sad, it's both youthful, loud and hard charging, and serene and wise. It's a step forward from his Broadway show that debuted three years ago and his memoir released four years ago. Now he's not only telling the story of his life, but asking in the face of death about life's meaning and savoring life in the current moment. It's the happiest Springsteen album in many decades. Hmm. When I listen to it, there's more joy than dread, Springsteen said. Dread is an emotion that all of us have become very familiar with. The record is a little bit of an antidote to that. The album generates the feeling you get when you meet a certain sort, uh, sort of older person, one who knows the story of her life, who sees herself whole, and who now approaches the world with an earned emotional security and gratitude. I'll stop there for a sec. I love that description of people as they age. Like you, you do see people go different directions as they age, but that picture of people who are like secure in themselves, uh, they have this kind of underlying joy, even in the midst of getting older or maybe help or whatever else it might be. But this kind of serenity that says, you know what? I don't have to chase after the same things I did in my 20s and in my 30s. Mm. And now I could be more reflection, reflective, but still live my life. It says, right, even in the 70s, Springsteen still has drive. And uh, I think this is interesting, particularly, and I think Brooks is going to get into this, as we go to the polls to vote on two guys in their low 70s, yeah, uh, right. I think is a very interesting juxtaposition here. Low 70s? Is that is that how we... <laughs> I forgot how old Donald Trump is. So Biden's 73, I believe, right? 
No, no, no. I was more wondering about the phrase. I thought low 70s was how you talk about temperature. Wouldn't it be early 70s? <laughs> early 70s. There you go. <laughs> They're in there. Low, They're... low 70s, early uh, high humidity. I don't, I don't I'm know. I'm currently in my low 40s, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I just wasn't sure. I was like, wait a minute. Have I been saying it wrong? I wasn't, I wasn't sure. Yeah, I, I think I think what you're – what you're touching on here, and I think it's I would be, I would love to know your thoughts if you you know for the rest of us who aren't like platinum selling artists like there is there right. there does seem to be something built into the fabric of being an artist or a musician a songwriter that helps foster this type of reflection you know this type of like looking over your shoulder and mm-hmm. um to have an outlet like that sounds wonderful and very few of us have that outlet available to us. Right. Like they, yeah. they quote a, a Benedictine nun who said, memory is many things. It is a call to resolve in us. What simply will not go away. I think a lot of people maybe are wondering like how, well, how do I do that? I don't have, I'm not a songwriter. I'm not a musician. So like what, what would you say maybe would be things to consider as someone's wanting to wanting to reconcile or wanting to live out, the call that Springsteen is offering, but don't feel like they have the tools or resources to do that. Yeah, that's a great question. I, I, two things immediately come to mind for me. One, uh, and we've talked about this talking about Piper's book, right? Uh, Don't waste your life. JD Uh Greer just came out with a similar book. It's don't, uh, with your retirement years, don't put your life on a shelf, right? Like, like still engage in the mission that you've been called to still engage in life and, and use that extra freedom. But I would say, secondly, I think, uh, and again, I'm only 43 years old. You're younger than that. But I do think when you reach your 60s, 70s, I think it's an opportunity, uh, especially in how he describes there being a freedom as you get older, mm. uh, to go then invest back down into the younger generation, whether it be somebody, a generation behind you, two generations behind you go, hey, I have this wealth of experience and this wealth of you and I have both sat under, whether it be pastors or mentors or whatever, who are probably older and you just sit there going, man, just keep telling me what you've experienced, right? right? You're not telling me even your opinion. I'm like, just tell me your story. And I think for people in their seventies, I think it's an opportunity to stay engaged in life and to build back into the future generations and to say, Hey, I'm going to pass on what I've learned, what I wish I knew when I was 35 years old or whatever else. I think those are, uh, two ways. Cause I think it's a big one. I think retirement, the people I've talked to, right. Uh, retirement can be really tricky. You like live your whole life for it. You work towards it and then you retire and you go, what now? Like, what do I do now? And, uh, I think this article gets a little bit at that kind of like, okay, no, it's an opportunity instead of like, yeah, it's the end of the life. I'm just kind of waiting it out. But instead it's an opportunity to accomplish some things that you couldn't maybe in your thirties and your forties. Well, and I don't know if you saw this too. They, uh, they quote Richard Rohr a little later in the article. No, I didn't see borrow that. Borrow a, a phrase that I've heard him use. Uh, if you're unfamiliar, Richard Orr is a, a Franciscan monk. And his phrase is uh, bright sadness. And I've heard him talk at length about, you know, what that what that means. And it's often in the same kind of context where, and I think Piper writes to this as well, the um, the need for us to grieve the life that we had originally hoped for or something like that. Does that mm. ring a bell? Where he, he yeah, talks about yeah, yeah. Some, some of what maturity looks like is, actually grappling with the fact that your life doesn't look the way that you thought it would when you were 18 grieving it and then moving on or some, something like that. And I, I remember reading that thinking, Oh, that's a helpful call. That's a helpful reminder that everybody to some degree is going to look at their current life and think, ah, this is different than what I imagined. This isn't quite, I thought I would have done this by now or gone there by now. It's okay to grieve that. Just don't, mm-hmm. don't sit in that, which is why, again, I, I envy, you know, people like songwriters who have 
just this like built in mechanism almost to like process that to like pour their you know their journey kind of into and i think i think springsteen has shown in a lot of ways he's he's a master at it which i think is uh either way i realize this isn't like hard-hitting news by any stretch i just i thought I think it was, it's important though I, I think it's important i think you're right and i thought it was a uh, an interesting take on it and there's obviously like some political stuff kind of woven throughout this article as well so that is uh like everything up on our facebook page the common good radio show and we would love to know what you think we're going to end the show though the story that i just found fascinating i thought was really appropriate for today how next door neighbors with opposing political views stayed friends that's coming up next here in the common good on am 1160 hope for your life hi everyone welcome back to the common good my name is ian simpkins along with brian Fromm for the last time today but fret not uh, Lord willing, we will be back tomorrow, 4 to 6 p.m. And uh, most people are aware at this point that today is finally the election. And um, I've been finding it interesting that a lot of people, I mean, everyone's making political posts today. Um, some of them, mm-hmm. you know, more leaning Christian or more uh, partisan or whatever. But I, I wanted to end the show today not with like a hot take or a list or even really like a list of to do's. Um, I just found this this story really interesting, and it's a story how next door neighbors with opposing political views stayed friends. So I would love to ask you, Brian, just to read a good chunk of this story, and then with whatever time we have left, we'll respond. Okay, here we go. The Mitchells, lifelong Democrats, planted a Joe Biden sign in the front yard of their suburban Pittsburgh home. The Gateses, who live next door and are lifelong Republicans, put a Donald Trump sign in theirs. Another homemade sign stands in each yard. It reads, we heart them uh, with an arrow pointing to the other house. In the middle of each heart are the words one nation. There's so much hate, said Chris Mitchell. We want to send a message. The message, say members of the Mitchell Gates households, is this. People on opposite ends of the political spectrum can actually like each other and be civil. The question for many people is how. Millions of Americans are alarmed at the bitter split in the country, with nine out of 10 saying incivility is a problem, two thirds saying it's a major problem. People know how wrong this division is and actually want out of it, but they don't know what to do, said Carolyn Lukensmeyer, former executive director of the National Institute on Civic Discourse. Uh, the Institute, which describes itself as a nonpartisan organization, offers programs on getting along despite differences. People can start by listening attentively and with an open mind. Too often, people interrupt others or mentally prepare rebuttals while another person is talking. Uh, The Mitchells, Stuart and Chris, and the Gateses, Bart and Jill, met 14 years ago on their suburban street in Mount Lebanon, Pennsylvania, and they quickly bonded. Each couple has three children, roughly the same ages, who often walk to their neighborhood schools together and swim in the Mitchells' backyard pool. The family share a love for hockey, the boys playing on the same team, and the dad serving on the high school hockey board. When the Pittsburgh Penguins play in the NHL playoffs, Stewart sets up a big screen in the driveway, and the families gather together to watch. Our lives are intertwined, says Stewart. We call each other family. Although they generally don't talk about politics, they know where each one stands. When Barack Obama ran for president, Stewart, who is biracial, put a floodlight on a big Obama poster hung on his porch. Both families joked about his Obama shrine. They are pretty far left and we are pretty far right, says Jill. So how do they get along? They don't argue. They don't label each other. They listen to each other's perspective 
look for common ground and recognize that reasonable and good people can reach different Mm. conclusions. I think it boils down to respect, says Chris. We have no desire or illusion that we are going to change them or each other's minds. They also rarely bring up issues that are divisive to one another, like abortion. The subject came up only once soon after the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. The older boys, along with Bart and Chris, were in Virginia for a hockey tournament. Jill and Stewart were watching the game live streamed. After the game, they started talking about President Trump's nominee, Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, her stand on abortion and efforts to have her approved before the election. Jill, a Catholic, opposes abortion and supported the nominee. Stewart, who was raised a Methodist, was familiar with a time not long before when abortions were illegal and performed dangerously. So he said, we are not coming from the same place. Uh, he grew up in New York the same, and saw way more different situations than I ever was exposed to. We listened. We had our conversation. The next morning, Stewart came over with his cup of coffee and they watch the boys match together. The families also look for common ground. Stuart, a banker, and Bart, an accountant, often talk about the economy. We have a lot of shared ideas about what is wrong and whose needs need to be addressed. We differ on the best way to handle it. Both agree the country's debt levels are too high. They agree many Americans are struggling and need help, but don't agree on what role the government should play. The heart sign was prompted by a conversation over a weekly dinner together in a relatively new tradition they call a Monday mixer. Last month, when school began remotely, the families who had been in each other's bubble since the pandemic hit began eating together every Monday night, taking turns hosting and cooking for six children and four adults. One recent Monday, Jill was hosting the Mitchell family. They talked about school, about children, hockey, the delicious chicken Alfredo and chocolate chip cookies. The conversation then turned to yard signs. The Mitchell said somebody stole their Biden sign. The Trump sign was gone, too, but not stolen. Jill said she felt pressured to take it down when once friendly people started walking by her without mm. saying hello. The more they talk that evening, the more disappointed and upset they became about the growing hostility and impact it could have on their own children. She said, I'm going to make a sign, Chris recalls saying, one that showed they love their Trump supporting neighbors. Jill said she wanted to make one, too, declaring affection for their Biden-supporting neighbors. Along with the public statement, they wanted to show their children that people can choose to get along despite their differences. Our fundamental job as parents is to be good role models. We don't see them as Democrats. They're the Mitchells. We uh, know they are good people who live next door, and we love them. At first, the teenagers were mortified. They came home and said, oh, mom, (laughs) what the heck is this? Now, Jillian, her 14-year-old, doesn't mind. She said, I'm not a voter, but I think people should be more mature and not argue all the time. Fighting just leads to fighting. The couple say they haven't had any backlash from their homemade signs. Stewart says he receives texts from people about work or hockey. At the end, the text says, by the way, love your sign and the Gateses. So the article ends this way. Advice from the Mitchell and the Gates family. Uh, Stewart says, except that you don't have to be right. I thought I was right all the time growing up. If you don't think you have to be right, you'll listen more. Chris says, treat others the way you want to be treated. Bart says, recognize that the other person deserves respect, being willing to consider their opinion. And Jill says, don't be so quick to judge someone because the political signs you see in their yard. So that's in the Wall Street Journal. I love that you had us end this way, man, because what a great sign, again, of the civility that so many of us long for and the simple steps that remind people. And, again, and to see not- that it is actually possible. You know, I think sometimes it can feel like yeah. if you spend too much time in sort of the ethereal, nebulous, possible philosophical space, you can forget just the 
the practical power of loving your neighbor, of being kind to one another. And yeah. I know that people will have maybe reason to to disagree with that. And that that is OK. But I, I really felt like, yeah, today, uh, more than ever, we, we need to be a people, as we've been talking about earlier in the show, who are who are salt and light and the ways that we do that. Um, we're going to we're going to disagree, I'm sure. But I think especially for the Christ follower, we can all agree that the command to love God and love others is as relevant now as it's ever been. And uh, I just wanted to leave that challenge, that charge, um, but also that comfort, that reminder that Jesus is still on the throne, regardless of who wins the election, regardless of whoever sits in the Oval Office, uh, Jesus is still king. He's not king-elect, and uh, we serve a different king. We live in a different kingdom. So at the very least, uh, our prayers Amen. for all of you, uh, regardless of how you're feeling today or about today or tomorrow. And uh, we're excited to be back again tomorrow. We're going to take a deep dive into how we're all doing and a bunch of other things, maybe an article on cats or two chucked in there just for good measure. Uh, <laughs> we're grateful for all of you. We're praying for you. We love you guys. And uh, for Brian Fromm, my name is Ian Simpkins. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.